This is The Noted Liar, a podcast of short stories. Number five, interior. Interior, Blue River Lodge, day. Morris, most to everybody, and his wife, Julia, are having two old friends of hers over for dinner at their summer holiday rental near the Northumbrian coast. The friends, Callum and Beth, have driven up from Newcastle for the evening. Dinner is a dish of fried salmon and artichokes that Moz has never managed to make look anything less than horrendous, but it always tastes delicious if you close your eyes. Before dinner is served, the four of them are all enjoying a large glass of wine in the open-plan ground floor of the lodge. It really is quite amazing, sighs Beth. Beth is looking out of the large patio doors that make up the entire south-facing wall of the lodge. The large first-floor bedroom of the house, similarly, is mostly huge panes of glass allowing a wide, encompassing view of the landscape below them. The garden to the lodge is impeccably mown and tidied, either by the rental property's owners or whomever was hired to do so by the rental property's owners. At the end of the garden, a thick zone of brambles and wildflowers marks the edge of the property and borders off a steep drop of the hill. In the valley beyond, a wide, lazy river bends its way from west to east, lined by trees richly green from a hot, wet summer. Halfway down the river, the water tumbles down a wide stone step, about a metre high. It creates a soft, consistent rush of background to the intermittent noise of birdsong and ovine complaints. The hills roll up and away on the other side of the river, long yellow grasses and greener crops in the distance. Long shadows stretch across from a spinney in the first field beyond the water. The low evening sunlight is rushing eastwards like a tide, crashing in bright golden waves over the tree lines and breaking into twinkling droplets over the river. The bright green and yellow foliage of the trees has become pregnant with black shade. The lodge's garden is all in shadow now, heightening the brightness of the view beyond. It's like a giant television, ponders Callum. Yes, agrees Beth, you could be sat here watching one of those internet videos, those slow meditation ones of snowy train journeys and things like that. There's a trend for them, isn't there? Those BDSM videos. Both Callum and Moz go for at the mistake. Do you mean ASMR videos? laughs Moz from the kitchen. ASMR, yes, what did I say? I think you know exactly what you said, smiles her husband. I'm sure I could find some Tibetan bowl music or something, says Moz, picking up his phone. Complete the effect? I think it's fine the way it is, says Julia, walking back down the open stairs to one side of the room. We suspected it would be quite a good view when we booked this place, but yes, this is pretty spectacular, isn't it? Feels like a bit of a steal, given what we've paid. She does not catch Callum rolling his eyes at Beth. Callum, Beth and Julia stare at the view a moment while Moz continues to clatter around the kitchen. It does open, says Moz. You can step right into the television if you like. Oh, darling, you have to tell them about your television. Moz has this great story about his television. Uh, let's save it for the dinner table. I am almost there. Callum pulls open the large patio door with a satisfying rumble, and glasses in hand, the three of them step out into the dusk-gathering garden and chat noisily while Moz plates up. Okay, so Moz has this enormous television. I do. Tell them. I will. Okay, so I have a garden office. We had it installed last year. It's obviously coming in very handy now, obviously. So the finishing touch, this television, it became a bit more urgent. And it was the item I'd really built the whole thing for. I didn't want one like that in the house, asserts Julia, raising her hand firmly. No, but that was the deal. Everything in the interior refit to Julia's specification, but the shed at the bottom of the garden, 
that was mine. I mean, it's not a shed, really. This guy, he builds these things bespoke. It's very clever how it all slots together. Anyway, yes. I have my garden office and a huge television. There's no getting past it. It is enormous. 77 inches, organic LED. Organic LED. Puzzles color. Thousands and thousands of tiny little glowworms, explains Julia, wriggling her fingers. No, organic as inorganic chemistry. Like glowworms, you said. I think I must have been joking. Oh, I imagine millions of minuscule glowworms enslaved to some sort of electrical grid getting zapped when you want them to turn blue or purple. At one day, Mars, you'll put on the wrong thing, some kind of a nature program that sets them all off into a worm frenzy, and they'll all come slithering out of the screen. Callum and Beth laugh at Julia's slightly drunken silliness. Mars politely smiles. It's a very big, very bright television. Let's leave it at that. Sorry, let's, grins Julia. And yes, I will freely admit I happily use it to blast away teenagers across Russia during the day for the odd blast of violence, clear the cobwebs, and fuck me, does it look and sound amazing on a screen that big? But there is a work purpose. Yes, raises Callum. Julia did start to explain what you do. It sounded very interesting. I am European VP for talent for a relatively major US production company which specialises in middle-budget horror movies, but not just mid-budget horror movies, lots of other things too but mainly mid-to-low-budget horror movies. You'll have seen the posters, heard the names. Are, are you horror fans at all? Callum and Beth shake their heads dumbly. Well, you'll have seen the posters. Low-budget, lots of gore, jump-out shocks. Pump them out, get a pretty good return. A lot of stuff I'm proud to be associated with. We get some really good young directors and writers. Really clever, nonce Julia. Oh yeah, sharp as knives. And that's my job, to see who's out there, up and coming, anybody that deserves a break on one of our projects. Just keep an eye out, really. And I do a few other things, blurs over into sales. Anyway, yes, but in the main, I'm mostly paid to watch horror movies. A lot of horror movies. And I could have got a projector, but I didn't really fancy sitting in a dark little box all, all day, so I got a fucking huge television. Do you like horror movies? Beth asks Julia. Oh my god, no, she laughs. I'm not watching the good stuff, Mars carries on tersely. It's the just-out-of-film-school movies, the micro-budget credit card films. Whatever the agents are sending me. A lot of dross, a lot of violence for the sake of it. I just put it on as background, mostly, while I'm doing emails and everything. Things might grab you. A line, a performance, some nifty visuals or something, and you, and you make a note. But no, it's hardly the classics. Oh, and the office has a big glass front like this place, but with a much less exciting view of the back of our house. So, anyway, yes, that is the most part of my working day, me sat in front of the television with whatever is on. And one day, I get this knock at the door, and it's this woman. Well, not a knock at the door. My phone buzzes. We have one of those internet-connected doorbell things at the front, so I can see who it is if nobody else is in. And on the live feed on my phone is this woman. Bit younger than us, slightly crazy hair. Not obviously a delivery or a time waste or anything. I'm trying to use the intercom feature on the phone to talk to her, but the signal's fucked or something. I can just see her pressing the bell again, so I head through the house to actually open the front door the old-fashioned way. And she's gone. Nobody there. Gone. I head back into the garden, and she pounces on me, out of the shadows. Scares the shit out of me. She must have found the side gate open and came round for a look. Which is fucking cheeky, but I can see, in retrospect, why she did. She's a neighbour, not one I've ever seen before, as far as I'm aware, or maybe just never noticed. Not on our street, but the next right around the corner. 
And she is furious with me. That much is immediately apparent, but it's that cold, righteous fury. That uh, thin air up on the moral high ground, that vertigo of certainty, you know? Apparently, her children can see my television. They can see all the way in, and the gory details of the gory details have found their way back to her, and they're really upset. She's had a look for herself, and yes, she can see it all, and she is shocked, and she is appalled, and she is curious why a grown man is watching all this kind of thing, but that's my business, okay, fine, but I need to show some responsibility, and get some blinds, and just fucking pull them. I felt like I was in one of those outrage videos. So many of them now, everyone's wise to it. Somebody's shouting in your face, get your phone out and start filming. Plead your case to the court of public opinion, miscarriages of justice common, no returns. I didn't think to do that. I meekly submitted, mumbled my apologies, yes, waiting on the blinds, will be more considerate, blah blah. Off she goes. And I really, really wish I'd stood my ground. It festered in me the rest of the day. It really did, confirms Julia. There I am. I'm in the privacy of my own home. I am not bothering anybody. I'm not projecting this stuff on a wall or into her house. I am completely within my rights here. I figured out where I think she lives. It's not like she's even backing onto our garden or in anything adjoining. On the corner, there's a large house converted into flats. I think she must be on the top floor. So effectively, if you're looking out of a back window at my screen, that's a distance of something like 300 feet away? Football pitch kind of length. So that's like watching whatever the opposing goalkeeper has on his phone, isn't it? You're one goalkeeper, he's at the other end trying to distract you with a cat video or something. It's like that. You can't make anything out of that distance. Binoculars, posits Callum. Binoculars, exactly. Or telescope or something. At that distance, you have to be actively trying to see what is on my television. And the more I think about it, the more there was something about her that was ringing alarm bells. Nothing about her person, nothing obvious, but something about her that just screamed, religion. She held her hand up at me this funny way, like there was something missing in it. Like she was holding me back somehow. Yeah, the more I thought about it, that was what was missing. Total vampire hunter commitment, a big wooden get-thee-to-Satan horror movie man invisible cross. I'm thinking, it's obvious what's happened here. This isn't a couple of kids bursting into tears after glancing out of the window. This isn't young children. This little intervention, this trip down the road to talk to me, I'll tell you what that is. That's a policy decision. So, an experiment. That evening, I worked up a couple of full-screen captions on my laptop, plugged into the back of the television so I could flash them up, and then I put on a stone-cold classic. The Thing. John Carpenter, Kurt Russell. Something that's going to work well visually. Something to make your eyes pop. Fast forward to the bit with the Petri dishes, you know, all the really mind-bending stuff. And I've not seen it. Apologises Beth. Julia sighs. Callum knows. Look, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So I put it on, and I just let it all kick off, freaky shit galore, and then pause. Switch to the laptop. Caption 1. Keep going? Question mark. Caption 2. Blink twice for yes. And I wait. Look over at the flats. About 30 seconds. Thinking about it. Thinking about tipping their hand. Then ping. Top floor. Right hand window. Lights on. Lights off. Lights on again. Upset my ass. Having agreed that Beth is driving home, after dinner, Callum splits a joint with Mars on the decking outside the lodge. So what makes a good horror movie? Puffs Callum. Moz sighs at the polite banality of the question. 
courteous small talk between strangers as the long-time friends wash up and catch up inside. A question, or a variant of it, is usually the second or third hand up in any professional Q&A he participates in. What kind of thing are you looking for? I don't know, is the honest answer, and if anyone else did, I'd be out of a job. Thinking further, Moz relents at Callum's question. It actually has more objectivity to it. Interiority. Interiority? Yes. Is that a word? Maybe I've coined it, but yes, that's the word. Interiority. It gets inside you. Any film can have things that just jump out at you and go boo. That's easy. That's just a matter of, I don't know, editing software. Anything can have shocks and monsters, you know. Moz shakes his hand at the night. Stuff that's out there. No, I mean an inner life. And I'm not just talking characters, necessarily. Not like pages of backstory pretending to be depth. Fuck no. Quicksand can have depth. Now, I think all films, all stories of a certain level of quality have an intelligence, a mind of their own, communicating with the audience. And in the horror genre, that mind is troubled. Something is deeply worrying them. And they've decided that the audience is going to share their worry and take it home. The next couple of days of holiday are rainy and dull. Morris and Julia split their time between drizzly walks along the coast, holiday reading, and quiet dinners compromised by missing ingredients, all supplemented by much more wine than usual. The third day is dry and sunny again. They take their holiday reading to the beach, have dinner out in an empty restaurant downcast by social distance measures, and return early to the lodge. Moz is deciding on a bottle of wine to open when Julia calls him over to the window. Behind a copse just above the river, thick black smoke is billowing upward. Can you go and see what that is? asks Julia. What? Go over there and just see what's going on. Moz fails to see how it is necessarily any of their business. He knows where Julia's head is. The television news last night was full of the summer wildfires along the west coast of the US, apocalyptic scenes turning the skies above San Francisco blood orange. Here, it is just rain for two days, and he is looking at some of the luscious, greenest vegetation he has ever seen in this country. We can call the fire brigade if it looks like it's getting out of hand. No, it looks deliberate. Why would a fire just start over there? She has a point. And, Moz reasons, if there is somebody over there deliberately starting a fire, are we happy going to sleep in the middle of nowhere with said person still down there tending it? Perhaps we should call the police. Oh no, I'm not talking to the police. They won't get here for hours, and it'll just be a lot of hassle. Just go and see what it is, Moz. If it is some kind of psychopath arsonist down there, just don't engage them and come back. Exasperated, Moz flails little. Are you going? Yes, yes, I just need my shoes. Moz ties his laces sullenly and pulls open the big rumbling door to step out into the garden. There is no immediate path down to the river. Moz has to track the bottom edge of the garden into some woods. There is a light path through the bracken leading down over a wooden stile. On the other side, he finds himself in a deeply shadowed dip, and it is suddenly less clear where the path continues through high grass and thickets. The ground is still damp from the week's rain, and is slippy and muddy in places. He loses his foot in slightly at one point, and his ankle collapses. He is momentarily worried he has twisted it, but walks it off in a few grimacing steps and a few muttered curse words. He stops at the bottom of the path where it emerges onto the wild grasses that follow the river. He suddenly feels very stupid in his shorts and trainers. He worries about ticks and their diseases, and his legs itch immediately in sympathy. Looking behind him, he cannot see the lodge at all through the woods. He has not walked very far, but the sudden decline of the path has dropped him down a fair amount. Ahead, 
The light of flames is stronger through the cops. It's quite dark now. The sun is setting fast. He swears again, for not having thought to bring a torch. He would not even have known where to look for one in the sparsely furnished holiday home. No, there was one he had possibly left in his glove box. He should have brought that. He reaches instead for his phone for some light, but he realises he has left it at the lodge. The holiday has broken routine and habit, and he left the house without it. The fire is the only guide forward. Moz walks a little to the side, away from the river to see if he can see anybody by the fire. Through the smoke and trees it looks like it is burning unsupervised. As he gets closer, he can see it has been quite deliberately stacked. He just makes out the bones of one large wooden pallet on its side. He drops down again so that he is approaching with a couple of trees between him and the bonfire. The smell of wood smoke is suddenly filled with a bitter note of burning plastic or rubber. Moz freezes as a young man rounds the flames, thin and tall. He is carrying a large plastic bag from which he pulls a clutch of pink soft toys and throws them into the fire before Moz can even decide what kind of animals they are. They catch quickly in a plume of black smoke. His stomach drops a little in panic. What has he caught this man doing? What is happening here? What is he going to have to do? It's my own property I'm burning. Is that okay? The young man has not even turned around to face Morris. Uh, it's this isn't mine. I'm just from the holiday rental place up there. The young man nods. I come fishing here a lot. He turns back to the fire as if that explains everything. From the bag he pulls out a handful of small plastic toys and throws them in and then the bag itself with them. I have to get this finished. She'll wonder where I am. The man disappears into the shadow behind the fire again. Mars hears a car boot open, and then the young man returns with the headboard of a cot, which he foots at the base of the fire before letting it tip into the flames. He died. Our son. Fuck. I'm so sorry. He was meant to be born yesterday. They had to take her in a few days ago, though. The hospital said she had to go in on her own. He trails off, head bowed. Then he disappears back to the car. Moz turns back towards the lodge, unsure what to do. From here, he can see all the way back up to it. He cannot see Julia there. The young man appears with the base of the cot and throws it on top of the fire. Is, uh, are you sure burning it all is the right thing to do? She was so stupid. I said it was bad luck, but she said it was so close we could agree on a name. And then she wrote his name on everything. Every fucking thing. I could have taken it all to a charity shop or something, but it would all have been out there in the world somewhere. With his name on everything. And she might come across it somewhere one day. It would all be out there. Anywhere. His voice breaks, and the young man convulses in one swallowed sob. Moz steps forward his face in the dark, blank with impotence. Look, it... it just happened. You can't blame yourself. Oh, I don't. The young man's head snaps up towards Moz. Around his neck is a small silver chain with a pendant that glints in the firelight as it swings. I really don't. And you're not the first to say that, thanks. Okay. Moz steps back a little. I know, it all does just happen. I believe it now. But you don't, do you? Whatever you say, you and everybody else, you need to think you're good. You need to think you deserve everything you have, because there must be a reason, 
There must be a plot. Moz has nothing he can say to this. The fire crackles with pops of synthetic fabric. Does your wife know that you're doing this? It just all needs to be gone. They stand by the fire a moment. Morris turns away again to look to the lodge. He wants to walk back to it, but he feels that that would be wrong. He can see all the way up the hill. As it gets darker, he can see inside more easily now, even at this distance. Inside, Julia is there now. She's by the window, looking anxiously down, unable to make them out. She has no idea what is happening out there in the dark. Interior was written, recorded, and produced by Glyn Cannon. You can follow The Noted Liar at www.thenotedliar.com and another story will be along soon. <laughs>